Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The way we look at our world is fundamentally changing. Across the globe, we've seen dramatic changes to our ecosystems as species adapt to the ever-changing Earth. Humanity now wages a battle to save the planet, whether they know it yet or not. While everyday occurrences like floods, hurricanes, drought, or fires represent weather, their effect on humanity is shaped by our climate. Today we are joined by Deke Arndt, editor of the State of the Climate Report and chief at NOAA's Climate Monitoring Branch. Deke, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. And thanks for having me. Now, I'm... I'm being cool about this because he's sitting right in front of me here at the Weather Channel in our podcast studios, but I'm super excited to have Deke here because, I mean, I'm just going to be candid about this, and I'm not sort of, you know, kind of trying to get brownie points with Deke or anything. He's simply one of the best in the business at climate communication. He really is, and I, I say that with all honesty, and I think you're going to see that by the end of this podcast. Um, we're going to talk about a host of topics. Weather versus climate is what we're calling this episode, and we're going to go all over the place with it. So just buckle up for this one. But before we go there, I've got to keep the tradition of the Weather Geeks podcast. Deke, tell us how you got into weather and climate. Was there a story? Were you a kid? What what got you into this? So like a lot of meteorologists, I knew when I was four. Yeah. Uh, I liked maps. I liked weather. I liked clouds. Uh, I liked maps. Math, right. Thankfully, <laughs> yeah, you better like it. So I, meteorology. Sure. I, I grew up in Oklahoma. Yep. It's a big deal there. People talk about it a lot, and uh, yeah, so that's how I, I went. I went to school, got got a couple degrees in meteorology. Figured out I was a, a pretty bad forecaster. So uh, <laughs> there was a, drought, a job for a job opening at the climate survey in Oklahoma for a, a drought specialist, and so I, I uh, tried to in, reinvent myself as a drought specialist overnight and. F- fell in love with drought and then fell in love with climate. And that's kind of how I got here. Yeah. So your story is very typical of almost everyone that sits in that chair that calls into the Weather Geeks podcast, uh, that that early age. And so it's really interesting because you were at the Oklahoma Climate Survey and I know you most from your career at what used to be called NCDC, right. the National Climate Climatic Data Center. It's now called NCEI. That's right. And I'll let you tell us what that is. <laughs> but why don't you tell us a little bit about what NCEI does and what you do there before we get into this sort of weather climate and all the climate myths and things we're going to shatter, going to blow out of the water today. <laughs> yeah. Um, NCEI is, is uh, the National Centers for Environmental Information, and it's the result of NOAA combining four data data center campuses, so oceanographic data, coastal data, geophysical data, and then our shop in Asheville was climate data. And uh, so the combination of those four data centers became NCEI, which is headquartered in Asheville, but also has campuses in Boulder, Colorado, Stennis, Mississippi, and Silver Spring, Maryland. And what we do on on the climate side of that and the Center for Weather and Climate is um, we're basically the world's weather library. All the, all the data that's used by forecasters and, and others tactically and operational uh, kinds of ends up 
in an active retirement in Asheville. And right. and my group, what we do, and and I'm I'm, I'm dating myself here, but if you you know the old I Love Lucy shows where Lucy and Ethel are chasing the chocolates down the <laughs> conveyor belt, yes. that's the new data coming in, and us trying to compare that new data coming into this mountain of historical data that we sit on. So my group is a monitoring group, and we uh, mostly statistically try to compare what's happened recently to some kind of baseline. You know, how does this fit with with history? How unusual is this thing that happened? Is it part of a trend? Is it part of an expected trend? And so on. So you'll hear a lot of us, you know, when it was the warmest July on record. That that was uh, built on a lot of science that was developed in other parts of NCEI, but then my group Go ahead. Uh, we we kind of report that, op- operationalize the science, and, and report on out to the people. Right. And so, you know, as as we're taping this, just a week prior or a few days prior, the state of the climate report came out, and it's published in conjunction with the American Meteorological Society or AMS. Deke is the editor of that, and so the state of the climate is. Well, how do you how would you characterize the state of the climate based on that report? So first, I, I've got a um, kind of confess that I am one of the two uh, lead editors, but Jessica Blunden, my colleague, she does a whole heck of a lot more than me. But I get to ride co-pilot with her. Sure. Um, so we, we often frame the state of the climate as the, the annual physical of the of the climate system. So it's all the diagnostics from all the different pieces, from the atmosphere to the to the terrestrial aspects, to the what's going on in the ocean, and um, you know we're seeing rapid change in almost all of the the climate system. And you know, I was explaining, I forget, I was talking with someone the other day, and it's gone from you know in this annual physical metaphor, it's gone from hey, we're starting to see some changes in the temperature, and we would expect these other symptoms, um, and you know about. 10 years ago, it became, hey, we're seeing changes in all these other symptoms as well, and we would start to expect you know, serious impacts, and now we're moving into the era where um, the annual physical says, hey, we've been warning you about your temperature and these related symptoms, and now we're starting to see impacts like you know, uh, coastal erosion, beach loss, uh, big rain, flooding, uh, species migrations, and species failing to migrate, you know, so a lot of stuff like like that, and that sounds scary and alarming, and it, it, it is. You know, I wish there were a happier way to present that, but we're living in a time where uh, the climate system's changing faster than any time in human history. So we're we're dealing with the consequences. Yeah, of that. And, and absolutely. And I think the way you put that is really nice because there are some out there that say, "Oh, you guys changed the name from global warming to climate change mm-hmm. because it's not happening." I mean, you, you've you've heard all these things, and I think you 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 expertly put it that you know the warming is one thing that leads to other things. So climate change captures all of those other things that are happening. I mean, but what would you say to people that talk about that sort of name change? I think, you know, climate change is, is more accurate. It really um, describes the breadth of what's going on. So um, the the ultimate driver increased greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and that directly has a warming effect down at the surface. But then that unlocks all these cascading um, issues with things that melt or snow that, that doesn't show up or, you know, big rain. We get larger rain events and larger doses. So climate change captures kind of all of these follow-on effects of that. And I think it was, um, you know, I don't know if it was a calculated communication decision, but it certainly reflects more accurately what, what's really going yeah, on. Yeah, I agree. Just like a fever 
is just one sort of sort of set of symptoms that sort of reflects the broader things that are going on with the flu. So you don't describe say you have the flu by saying you have a fever. So <laughs> I, I completely agree with you. Now let's deal with this fundamental challenge in climate and weather communication. And we see it during the winter time when it snows. Frankly, we just saw it with some uh, high-level personality that tweeted, oh, you guys, climate change must be a hoax because it's snowing in Australia, although it's winter in Australia and we expect snow. Uh, But you see people sort of misunderstand this notion that because it gets cold in the wintertime or because there's a snowstorm, climate change somehow isn't real. So let's deal with this idea, first of all, by just explaining the difference between weather and climate. Sure. And and they're certainly related. So they have a strong relationship. Um, The weather makes up part of what is the climate, but the weather's different in that it's it's driven by the dynamics of the atmosphere that you and I have studied. Um, Probably forgotten many of the equations. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, weather is different. Weather, uh, and it's particularly cold weather outbreaks. Um, The the poles are still going to be cold, even in a warming world. You know, the poles are warming quite a bit, but they're quite a bit colder than the rest of the world. And the same meteorology that that yanked cold air down from the poles in 1976 is going to yank cold air down from the poles in 2019. Um, so, the, you know, it is, um, uh, they are relate. I don't want to completely divorce weather from climate, but the weather that we see day to day will continue to happen. It's still the same ingredients to make a big uh, mid-latitude winter storm as, as they used to be. They're just um, dealing with a little bit warmer air in the mid-latitudes and the Arctic, but that stuff's pretty doggone cold if you grew up in the South like we did, right? right. Um, right. Um, but in the long run, you know, and it's just like a lot of other events, um, a lot of these big meteorological events from from one of the frameworks that we learned when we go through school, you know, they're driven by ingredients. The ingredients that make up a meteorological event don't change. What climate change will affect is, is how those ingredients come together over time or how often or how powerfully they come together. Yeah, you and there's a big area of climate change called attribution, this notion of what can we say about contemporary weather events within the context of climate change? Uh, I was an author on a National Academies report with several other colleagues, and I've seen you deal with this masterfully as well. In fact, there was a, 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 a series of analogies you tweeted, I think involving your son or analogy <laughs> you used, trying to explain this idea of how, uh, yeah, we have naturally varying climate, and yeah, we always had hurricanes and droughts. That's Those are indeed true statements, but they're happening within a different context. Can you share a little bit of the sort of how you frame this sort of attribution question? Yeah, so the, and it, it's a fascinating science, and I love watching along as, as they develop it. So, um, you know, what they're trying to do is is uh, understand how much more likely a, a certain event or less likely a certain event is in a changing climate or whether a changing climate contributed to the magnitude of that event. Did it make the heat wave bigger? Did it make the drought more intense? Um, but I think, you know, again, the relationship going back to the metaphor with, uh, with kids is, you know, everyone uh, has a parent, right? Right? And we've all had a relationship with some parental figure, um, and climate is this parent figure, you know, related to weather. So it's it's often kind of off stage as a parent or a coach or a teacher or a mentor, and and you're nodding because I think you're all all four of those roles, right? I, I think so. <laughs> you're a parent, a coach, a teacher, yeah, and a mentor, ab- right? Absolutely. But you know, so you in your life as a parent, as a coach, as a mentor, as a as a teacher, you have this long lasting kind of profound influence in the long run over all the the folks that look up to you, right? Um, 
but you're not driving even with your own kids. You know, you're not turning every single knob that determines, you know, the outcome of their day. They may be hungry. They may be tired. They may have got into something at school. So if they do extreme behavior, um, there's typically, you know, the same ingredients that are driving that. But if we if we pull you out of that role and we change that uh, to a, a different parent, a different teacher, a different, a different coach, voice, yeah, different voice, then the kind of long-term trajectory of their lives has changed. And, you know, the day-to-day stuff that causes good or bad days is probably really similar to the way it was in the past. But the role that you play has changed. And I think that's a a really good way to understand uh, the relationship between climate and weather, and especially climate and big weather. Yeah, I agree. I think that's just an excellent analogy. We we try to find analogies because, you know, the complexity of climate and weather and modeling is is very intense, very physics and calculus Base, but part of the challenge, and I think Deke uh, understands this and conveys this well, is that when we try to reach stakeholders and policymakers and just the public, we can't talk in our equations and our graphs and charts. We've got to talk in meaningful terms to people. And I think you excel at that. Speaking of charts and graphs and terms, we see these temperature anomaly maps quite often. Um, they explain to us um, things about what parts of the globe are warming and cooling. Uh, you all are very much a part of producing many of those. How do they come about and what what is an anomaly map and why do we need them? That's a, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, so we, uh, again, sitting on all of that historical data, what these anomaly maps show is, is how much warmer or cooler or wetter or drier or droughtier or less droughty um, a, the recent situation is compared to some historical baseline. And normally in weather, we call that normal, right? It's a 30-year period, kind of rolls over every decade. We don't necessarily use that 30-year normal all the time, but we establish some kind of average, historical average, and what the anomaly values and what the anomaly map shows. How different was, for example, this July in Nebraska's temperature from the average July Nebraska temperature? And that helps us see kind of, it removes the seasonality. It removes the, yeah, it's always cold in the winter, and yeah, it's always warm in the summer. And it really lets us um, zero in on how different this July was than previous Julys. Is July warming? Um, are crops that are sensitive to extreme heat during July, this lets us know kind of how much more heat they dealt with or less heat, you know, if the anomaly is blue or cold. So we use that a lot and it really, um, we use that to explain um, not just the difference from a historical baseline, but then we kind of go a step beyond that and we'll try to uh, determine how unusual that is compared to the baseline. So not only is was it two and a half degrees warmer than average in Omaha in July, and I'm making these up off the, but you know this may be the third warmest July that Omaha has had. So that's kind of an, uh, an additional expression of unusualness on top of that. And we found that ranks like that. Although scientists, you know, typically will kind of roll their eyes and go, "That's a really simplistic way to do it," but that lands really well with real people. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm talking with Deke Arndt from NOAA. And he's based in Asheville, but he's here at the Weather Channel with us today and just one of the best communicators and climatologists in the business. And you just heard him talk about I think July... 2019 was the warmest July on record. Is that right? That's right. For the globe. Yeah. So what are some of the things, because I, you, you're out there like I am, you hear some of the quibbles, you hear some of the contrarian positions. What are some of the top contrarian positions or sort of skeptical positions that you hear about what you do or about the data you use or about the baselines that you're using? I think probably the two most common ones are... Um, the influence of urban uh, areas yeah, on the observations. We, 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 climate scientists know about those, yeah. surprisingly. You <laughs> know, you, be, yeah, yeah you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a roadway near the Thurama. We, we know that. <laughs> we yeah. understand those biases. So, right? yeah, that's probably one of the, the biggest ones. And we do, you know, like you said, we've had people dedicate parts of their career to help identifying and figuring out and removing these effects when we see them. Yeah. I think the other thing is when we do make these adjustments, there's a, a myth out there that's mostly false that we always make the adjustments in one direction. And, <laughs> and the reality is uh, the overall effect of, of these adjustments that we make for like the urbanization or changes in instrumentation or the moving of stations um, or the way that the obser- observations are made, we, we correct for all of those. And the total kind of sum of our corrections actually reduces the amount of warming seen in the raw data. So we get accused of pushing the needle. When you're actually... We're pushing the needle the down, other way. Downward, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so. Yeah, but you, you get all of these accusations. I mean, it's, I, I, I saw this story uh, written the other day about sort of a, a, a measurement up in, in the Arctic near the North Pole. I think it was above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And I said, well, there's certainly no city or air conditioning unit there. Let's see what they say about the bias there. But it's, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you're an expert. You have two degrees in this. I mean, we didn't miss all those things. Things that you see out there in Twitter and the blogs, we, we we account for those. We understand that climate varies naturally, and that there are urban heat island signal. We, but and but that doesn't change anything about what you're seeing day to day, year to year in your work. Yeah, and I think just the and, and a lot of times um, in science, you know, we we recognize uh, less than spectacular data, right? It's out there. It's out there in every field, and every field handles it and gets a hold of the truth, you know, while kind of accommodating these issues with the data. Uh, thankfully, the meteorological communities, you know, so spread around the world that there's always an expert somewhere that can help describe what's going on with a particular weather station. So dealing with, with, Less than perfect data is is just part of science. It's part of economics too, right. and um, you know these corrections we make get us closer and closer to the truth. No, I mean another area. You don't just deal with climate change; you deal with just climate and climate mm-hmm. variability. Things like El Nino and Enso uh, are those still things that you think about even on their own or within the context of hurricane season? Enso signals and and variability. So our colleagues that are that are doing the hurricane kind of seasonal forecasting certainly El Nino. You know, and so it's such a, uh, an important factor in both Pacific and Atlantic hurricanes. So the, the two basins that, that Americans care the most about um, have a really strong relationship. La Nina tends to see um, more uh, Atlantic hurricanes. El Nino will, will tend to see more uh, Pacific hurricanes. Again, it, it's not a, a 100% you know, correlation. There are other things that go on way beyond. Oh, you're a tropical I guy, so you can probably work. fill in the blanks sure. here. Yeah. I'm just an old guy from Oklahoma, a drought <laughs> guy from Oklahoma. You but, know drought, bro. <laughs> but yeah, so these, um, you know, in fact, the climate variability that we see, you know, so the day-to-day weather and then the, the weeks at a time, kind of months at a time and, and one or two seasons at a time, that climate variability still drives a, a lot of the impacts, a lot of the costs and a lot of the benefits 
that we that we see from the climate system come from these these oscillations, these patterns, these these cycles um, that are different than climate change, which is a kind of a one way trend up. But these cycles are are embedded upon that long term signal, and they still mess with our economy. They still mess with our our kids' wedding plans. Right. They still mess with our vacation plans. Uh, so yeah, they're very important, and they will continue to be important in a warming world. Now, interestingly, and I've seen you put something out there on this in social media before that during El Nino years, the, the, the planet tends to warm a bit more. It tends to have a, I mean, if you look at sort of a plot of El Nino, La Nina years and the warming signal, it seems that the El Nino, Nino years get even more of a boost. And that to me has created one of these, what I call zombie theories, theories in climate that we've killed off in the science, but they live on in social media and <laughs> blogs. You know, there's one zombie theory out there that, oh, it hadn't warmed since 1998. Right. And we know that 1998 was a pretty significant El Nino year as well. And right. so probably was an anomalously boosted year. And, and certainly we've seen it kind of surpassed that now. Talk to us about the role of El Nino and the warming signal. Yeah. Uh, so El Nino, you know, is a complex interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere, but, um, and it has really profound kind of seasonal outcomes. But in the context of, of global temperature, uh, an active El Nino in the Pacific exposes a lot more, a bigger footprint of warm water on, on, in the equatorial Pacific. So it's, a, it's like having a, a big heating pad uh, in the Pacific underneath the atmosphere. And if you have a, a pretty strong El Nino or a long-lasting El Nino, or especially if it's a strong and long-lasting El Nino, that heating pad's going pretty strong, right, for months. And so that gives up a lot of temperature to the atmosphere. And so we tend to see in the months after an El Nino starts, and then even in the months after an El Nino wanes this this temporary boost and and if you look at the the time series of the global temperature it's a it's a one way escalator trip up but there are wiggles up bumps up and down and so it's like jumping up and down as you go on the escalator and these El Ninos are the jumps up. Yeah. So to get a really high temperature, you either need to jump really high, which is a really strong El Nino, which is what happened in 98, um, or you need to ride that escalator, which is where we are You know, here 20 years later, we've been on that escalator. We're a lot higher on the global temperature curve. And the next big jump up is probably going to make us the warmest year on record. Yeah, I think that's right. I think these stories about warmest months and warmest years, I mean, they continue to be breaking news status, but they're part of a new normal, I believe, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I want to take this opportunity now to sort of see what's going on around the U.S. and the world, since we have one of the top climate experts in the world sitting right in front of me. Let's start with Alaska. We've seen one of the warmest summers on record in that state. Um, how is that? In, I, I saw recently a story where some salmon are dying in the water there because it's too warm. Uh, how, are, how are these warm temperatures in Alaska affecting the ecosystem or the, the climate system there? So a lot of that is, you know, uh, an interplay between the, the region is the Arctic's warming, you know, really fast. And so we're seeing sea ice and snow go away a lot faster. Um, so there's kind of multiple complex factors that go in. For the, for the salmon in particular, um, those particular streams that they were going upstream to spawn in just got really warm, and a lot warmer than the species is able to adapt. Well, salmon don't have the ability to just go make a new river in a colder place, right? So we saw a pretty catastrophic die-off in, in a couple of streams. The the shrubification of the tundra, so there's this... Uh, you know, in tundra, where you stay, I'm, I'm, my oakiness is going to expose itself here. <laughs> sedges and and short grasses, uh, kind of the tundra landscape, lichens. 
across much of the tundra up there, um, as we see it warming, we're getting a much more uh, uh, woodier vegetation. So bushes and shrubs showing up. Well, the 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 animal life up there is used to working in a, a flat kind of arctic prairie kind of existence, and you know that's disruptive. Uh, it's disruptive to the things that, that live up there. Um, it causes a bigger fire hazard, which we're seeing we're across seeing the, the Arctic. The Arctic yeah. has been burning. Yeah. So um, the changes in in the ecosystem up there are definitely respond to the to the climate and it has a, a, a broader reaching impact. Now that's true of just about everything climate. Um, it's amazing how much we share uh, the climate around the world, how much we're touched by and touch different places in, in the world. Now, speaking of that, how do how is this warmth in the Arctic region? Are there ways that it connects to us in the lower 48? So there's a lot of research, and I, I've just been following along uh, the research. There's a lot of research that suggests, and in cases strongly suggests, and I think we're getting close to decisively suggest that um, the as the sea ice and snow retreats and we reduce that natural gradient between the very cold Arctic and the temperate mid-latitudes towards a much warmer Arctic and a slightly warmer mid-latitudes, as we relax that gradient, just the meteorology that we studied says, well, the, the jet stream won't be as tight. It won't right. be as, as strong. We'll see a lot more meridional, north and yeah, south these flow. Yeah, big wavy or higher amplitude wave patterns. Yeah, yeah. so, and we have, we anecdotally have seen that a lot in the northern hemisphere, and those are associated with these long heat waves or these long periods of very heavy rain, and you can just jump around Eurasia, North America, and we've seen these um, uh, seemingly, I haven't put the numbers to it yet, but a more stuck jet stream. So these blocking patterns where we uh, see a lot of persistence in the day-to-day weather. And that's usually not good for folks like us that have adapted to a mid-latitude transient climate system. Well, I know even just uh, right across the hallway from a Stu Ostro, a senior meteorologist here, has been doing some work on these sort of ridiculously resilient highs is what I yeah. think he calls it. And <laughs> it's so, a great term. Yeah, it's a great term, but it's sort of this notion of these sort of, you know, sort of stuck patterns that we mm-hmm. see. And when you have high amplitude, for those of you, this will geek out for a second, the jet stream. <laughs> um, jet stream is a dividing sort of wind system between sort of the colder north poleward uh, air and the warmer air to the south of that. And it all also is a dividing line of sort of this sort of system of highs and lows, these ridges and troughs uh, in the Rossby wave system or wave train that we see around the globe. So it is a defining governing characteristic of your weather, believe it or not, particularly if you live, live in the mid-latitude and, you know, Deke's discussion of what we call in the science sort of this Arctic amplification and its effect on the jet stream, that affects you. I mean, in Athens, Georgia or in Enid, Oklahoma. So there's a connection from the Arctic and so I, I wanted to make sure we cover that. Another area that we're seeing, and I want to get your thoughts on, warming temperatures, and we've seen heat waves this summer all over the globe, mm-hmm. including here in the U.S., but it's the nighttime temperatures that are the problem. Talk about the nighttime temperatures and their trends. That's right. I was just talking with some of your colleagues here at the Weather Channel about, you know, they asked what, what's jumped out at me over the last 10 years, and, and that's what I went to first, was that the, the cold places and, and the cold times of year and the cold times of day are warming faster than, than the warmer places. So it, And that really shows up in nighttime versus daytime temperatures here in the U.S. Uh, we've seen a lot. And, and um, you know, so the nighttime warming is larger than the daytime warming. The, the slope is steeper, however you want to phrase it. We're seeing the nighttime warming drive most of the signal. 
And nighttime warming is, is um, you know, an overnight low of 79 degrees isn't as sexy as an afternoon high of 104. I know. It's just people don't hear. They hear 70, but at night, that's a problem. That's a lot. And, and, and it drives energy consumption, and it, it um, it's hard on public health. If you got to work outside in the morning at sunrise and it's 79 instead of 72, that's going to tax your body a lot right. faster. Right. And um, crops and livestock are the same way. If they don't get that nighttime cool off, it it's tough. And, and if you grow up in a house, if you're living in a house where how big the electric bill is a, a really strong determiner of how good your family's month is going to be, if you're paying more uh, for that cooling um, and you're having to make hard choices, it affects all of us. So yeah, that's a kitchen table issue. It's not yeah. about a polar bear in 2080. That's a kitchen table issue right now. Yes, sir. Yeah, so I, I think that's right. And so it also has significant health implications. I, I saw something recently where there's some part of Texas, I believe, where for 36 hours, the temperature didn't drop below 90 degrees oh, or something. Yeah, I, 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 I can't remember where I saw that. I'm pretty sure I read that somewhere. Uh, that's just ridiculous. Uh, but Decart's really trying to connect the dots here. And I'm, I'm talking with him. He's from NOAA uh, at NCEI up in Asheville. Going a little bit broadly to the world now, the state of the climate revealed the startling revelation that we've now seen the warmest month on record. Um, We talked a little bit about that. Um, How do you go about the process of pulling together this large state of the climate report? It's a fun process. And so, uh, again, I mentioned Jessica Blunden earlier, but she's been in the the captain's seat for for nine years now and really a a stable influence as the lead editor. So what we do is we we recruit chapter editors. So it's split up into seven chapters. The first is an introduction, and then there are six kind of topical chapters after that. So we'll have one to three chapter editors, and they'll go out and recruit authors from around the world. So we're looking for a really broad diversity of authorship, both by discipline, by place, by, you know, uh, what kind of institutions you're coming from. We want as many uh, different voices in that document as as possible. So while I don't have a very strong Rolodex of glaciologists, you know, around the world, well, our global climate and our Arctic chapter, they do. And so um, we bring in any in a given year, 450 to 550 experts experts to, to hit a topic. And it is kind of, again, the annual physical. We, we don't go too deep into attribution, if at all. Um, we just want to provide that big, thick folder for the experts to come in and look at the, the vital signs, um, so to speak. So it's about folks. The folks that we recruit are either experts in a phenomenon or they're sitting on the data that describe that phenomenon. And if we can get folks from different parts of the world, different backgrounds to, to write each section together, then then and it's even even better. Now we, I, I've, when we have these big reports that come out, like the State of the Climate or the National Climate Assessment or the IPCC, there there is a subset. It's a vocal minority that say, yeah, but they stack those reports with authors and scientists that are believers, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. uh, they never sort of get the broad range of the full scientific consensus. Well. We, we know that roughly 90 or so or 87, 90, 97%, whatever number you want to believe of people that are publishing about climate scientists, all are sort of arriving at the same conclusions. How do you respond to people that say, well, you're not getting the full spectrum of viewpoints on this? Well, actually, some of our authorship comes from that less um, enthusiastic about climate change perspective. So the upper air temperature section is, is written by a scientist who um, is uh, not completely on board. You know, so this document is really about uh, 
compiling the data, um, getting the the analysis out there. But we've worked really hard to try to make it a like a reference document for people that want to look at it. So now there are several appendices that are like, okay, if you, if you liked what you read in Chapter 3, Section B, Part 2, go to the appendix, and then here's where you can go get that data and play with it, look at it yourself. I, I get a little um, – th- that's one of those – you call it a zombie uh, – Zombie theory. Zombie theory that um, – that there's this giant kind of collective conspiracy to to promote climate change, and I think, why would a hydrologist in Russia be on, on board with this, and why would a, 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 a forecaster in Chile be on board with this? You know, so that's again part of the diversity. Of the authorship helps, um, I think, uh, really enrich the robustness of the documents. We have people from from all parts of the world, literally all parts of the world, contributing to this thing. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And we're back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm having a great conversation with Deke Arndt from NOAA. And we were just sitting here sort of during that break. We're trying to figure out where are each of our membership cards are to that secret climate collective <laughs> that always we can accuse of being a part of that doesn't exist. But no, in, in all seriousness, this is a climate crisis. And, uh, and, and you know, we have a uh, Deke plays a significant role, not as a stakeholder on either side of the issue or whatever side of the issue, his, his role and his organization is a collector of data and, an, um, and a, a database archival and analysis uh, location of experts. And so it's the data, it's the science. We've talked about heat. We've talked about some of the temperature issues. What are some other big global changes that concern you as a scientist? I think big rain, uh, the, the increase in the hydrologic cycle in general. So the way water cycles through the system. Co- connect the dots to the listener of Weather Geeks of how a warming climate leads to bigger, more intense rains. You bet. So a warmer atmosphere, um, to use a term, can hold more water vapor. And a warmer uh, surface, whether it's an ocean surface, or a land surface can put more water vapor into the atmosphere. So as you warm the the planet, as you on average make things warmer, you're carrying around more water vapor. And when the meteorology meteorology comes together to make a storm, you can pump more water vapor and make more rain or snow in that storm. So that's kind of the concept of the increased uh, hydrological or water cycle. And and we see it in the ocean too. So we, we're seeing big rain increase over land. We're to some extent seeing big drought increase over land, but even in the oceans, the the salty parts, which are kind of the deserts of the ocean, they're getting saltier. And the fresh parts, which are kind of the rainforests of the ocean, they're getting fresher as more rain uh, dominates. So I think, you know, kind of bringing it back to, you know, uh, here in the middle latitudes, big rain is increasing here in the U.S. I think that's probably the thing that we'll see the most. It's certainly the most immediately costly impact on a day-to-day basis um, when you do the statistics. And 
Are we going to go um, analyze that thunderstorm in Maryland and see if that particular thunderstorm was directly connected to climate change? No, but we can look at the stats, right? We can look across the board and we're seeing the big rain is getting bigger and that has impacts. Uh, that means uh, more flash flooding. Um, I, look uh, at storms like Florence and Harvey. I mean, in fact, before you came on, we were taping an episode with Jeff Linder from down in Houston on Hurricane Harvey. And, you know, there's some argument that these hurricanes are wetter. Yep. And and you stick more water vapor in a, in a storm system, mm-hmm. and statistically, over time, you're going to start pulling more rainfall out of it. Yeah. And we do see that. We see that strongly in the U.S., especially east of the Rockies. I think that's probably, if you're going to ask me, like, what, what what's the thing we're going to be dealing with the most is, is probably how do we make this, uh, how do we adapt to the fact that we are already seeing bigger, big rains? Um, how do we move that water through our creeks and streams and storm sewers without hurting people, without putting too much water in there and, and flooding people's homes and putting them in danger? I think that's a, a real challenge for us. Now, one of the things that I struggle with as a scientist, and I get qu- asked this question quite a bit, is you just talked about sort of more intense rain and mm-hmm. uh, wetter storms, if you will. But we also know that there's a climate change signal in drought. And people often ask me, well, you just said that we're going to have heavier, more wet rainstorms. And now you're telling me we're going to also have more intense and frequent drought. They have a hard time reconciling. And, you know, it really is this notion in the, the, the literature said this for decades that the wet places will get wetter and the dry places will get drier. But how do you deal with that question? I know you get it. It's a it's a paradox, right? Yeah. And so when you say them back to back, people are like, OK, what's this guy selling? Yeah, now, me, now, now, now they think you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So the fact is um uh, we are seeing more of our rains come in larger events, which means we are typically seeing in most places, again, this is a, a law of averages here, but as we see more and more of our rains come in bigger events, we're seeing fewer and fewer kind of medium and small events. So the time between rainfall events on average may be lengthening, especially in the drier parts uh, of where we live. And then you add on top of that, a warmer atmosphere is a thirstier atmosphere and can pull more water out of the ground, pour more water out of plants evaporate more water off of bodies of water, um, that can, can intensify droughts. So that those two things working in concert, um, on top of the, the overlying basic principle that generally speaking, the wet places are getting wetter, the dry places are getting drier, those all acting in concert um, can help us see, and we do see in regionally, we don't see it as widespread as the big rain side of the equation, but we are seeing big drought, particularly in the Western US, Western Canada, occurring more in, in recent decades. Yeah. And I, I think that leads to all kinds of other things like wildfire activities mm-hmm. we're seeing in the Arctic this year. You guys at the NC, you know, guys and, and women, I mean, I, I'm trying to get away from using these gender-specific terms. Uh, you, the colleagues at the uh, NOAA NCEI also put out something, I think, each year periodically on billion-dollar disasters. Sure. Uh, we're, I, I think you're seeing an uptick in these. What would you say about the increase in billion-dollar disasters that we're seeing in the U.S. and globally? And how much of that, because there is a counterposition, well, some of that is just because there's more costly stuff in the path or way of these extreme events. So um, give us your perspective on the sort of trajectory or trends in, in billion-dollar events. Yeah, and, and the, the answer is yes. It's yeah. kind of an all-the-above answer, exactly. right? Uh, and it depends kind of on the phenomenon. So we we are moving 
moving into uh, parts of the, we have more stuff. We're a wealthier nation than we were in 1980. Um, we are moving into the South, which is exposed to more hazards that break our stuff. Um, we're also seeing increases in some of these phenomena, big rain in particular, um, that that can damage our stuff, um, big heat, uh, drought. Yeah, like the heat wave, uh, for example, in Paris or in Europe this year. Exactly. It probably has a climate change signal in it. That's right. So so some of these big rain, big heat, there's a, a really solid connection to climate change. But there's also this underlying kind of economic evolution that's going on in America. We have more stuff. We're, we are a wealthier nation. We live in, we're moving to places that are exposed to these, these higher end events. Some of those higher end events may be getting more intense. Uh, tropical cyclones, although we don't see more of them, we uh, think we're seeing more intense tropical cyclones. We're seeing wetter tropical cyclones. More ra- rapidly intensifying because of the heat content. And, and slower approaches to the coast, which drops a lot more rain. So it's it's a it's a concert of these things. And we and the, the person that runs this, is his name's Adam Smith, uh, which is funny to have an economics guy uh, named Adam Smith running this product. But, you know, he's very careful to, we're not, we don't try to disentangle that. That's really complex. It would take a, a team of economists and insurers and actuaries. Um, so we just say, look, this is all lumped in there together. This isn't about um, distilling out a climate change signal. This is about quantifying our relationship with the climate. And that relationship is the climate's changing and the economic conditions underlying our existence are changing. Well, final thoughts here. It's been a fascinating conversation with Descartes here on Weather Geeks. Uh, you know that you know, we hear a lot from different sort of corners, but I think most people and even policymakers are coming around on this, irrespective of their ideology or political background or where they're from. But there's still sort of this corner of the society that sort of puts out their misinformation and sort of ideologically driven facts. We'll kind of put that to the side for the moment. What is your thought on what you would say to the listeners about where we are with this crisis and what we need to do going forward as much as you can say without getting into the politics or any of those things? I know you're good about that. So I think um, judging on on who uses our data, who comes and 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 picks up our data and puts it into use, the the economic part of America has moved on. So the decision makers, the strategic thinkers in the the private sector are grabbing this climate information and they're making strategic calls based on the climate. AT&T put out a report recently on how climate change will affect its networks. That's right. Yeah. So the, the folks that are paid to to help maintain healthy companies and, and healthy economic conditions are already, they've already accepted climate change and, and they're uh, kind of investing their time and talent and resources into dealing with it. The national conversation and some of the rhetoric around climate change hasn't changed yet. Um, I'm very optimistic that we will very soon be able to have a national discussion about climate change with um, folks that think in, in lots of different ways. It's really, it's you know, diversity is so important. You need people to show up with ideas, um, and you can't just have one group driving you know, whatever solutions to anything, right? So I think that day's uh, coming soon. Uh, I think it's been a... <laughs> 
an interesting uh, path getting there. But I hope, you know, maybe the next time we sit down, uh, the country's having a, a much more honest uh, discussion about, you know, what's going on with the climate system. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think there's been a lot of sort of pessimism and some us pulling out of Paris agreement and all those types of things that had some people down. But I, I caution that. I said, look across the landscape. There's more conversation now about climate at the local and regional level in boardrooms and CEO of Fortune 500 companies, lo, um, uh, the faith-based communities, for example. And I know that's an area that you're big in as well, uh, even in the military. So yeah. the conversation and action is being happening. Sort of don't get lost into the broader narratives. Look, take a more careful look. So I'm optimistic like you, Deke. Thank you so much for yeah. coming on the Weather Geeks Th- thanks podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at DeekArt, yeah. and uh, that's probably where to find me. That's my work side. Uh, if they want to see pictures of my kids, yeah. they can go to Facebook. <laughs> yeah, and, and what about the uh, uh, NOAA NCEI um, the website? Yeah, uh, www.ncei.noaa.gov, and that's um, that'll get you climate data, that'll get you gravity data, that'll get you ocean data and coastal data. Yep, so... Got to end it there. Thank you again for listening. Uh, Continue to subscribe and tell a friend about the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. See you next time.